Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Target is looking for a print and pattern designer for their home division in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For remote work, the Wikimedia Foundation is looking for a UX designer. And Bandcamp is looking for a mobile applications developer. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these positions. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and ah, we are actually starting off this episode with a new review from Apple Podcasts. It's titled Invaluable and Authentic Resource, and it's from Rosa O. Here it is. Wow, I'm so mad I just discovered this podcast. I've worked around tech for the past four years. This is exactly the resource I wish I had back then. Thank you to Maurice and all of the amazing guests that joined the show. I'm making the transition to UX design, so this is exactly the motivation and insight I need right now. Thanks again. So many people I look up to on here. Rosa, thank you so much for this awesome five-star review. I love reading reviews. I love reading five-star reviews, of course, because it actually it really lets me know that y'all are out there listening to the podcast, that you're loving it, and that it's actually serving as some inspiration for you, which really is what helps me to keep it going. So thank you so much. Keep the reviews coming. Thank you again, Rosa, for that wonderful review. Now let's get into this week's interview. I'm talking with software engineer Nisi Kelly, founder and CEO of CareCover. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah. So my name is Tanisha Kelly and both personally and professionally, I go by Nisi Kelly in the industry. So feel free to call me Nisi if you like. And I am recently the founder and CEO of CareCover Incorporated, which is an insurance company that offers child care expense insurance for working families. Now, one thing that I'm asking, you know, all the guests this year is just how they're holding up during this time of the coronavirus and the pandemic and everything. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Actually, it's kind of ironic when the pandemic hit, I was already in quarantine. I had been in a car accident in mid-2019. And following up from that at the top of 2020, I had to have surgery on my spine. I had to rupture cervical discs. So I was already kind of quarantined in the house. I've already done my shopping. And, you know, by the time March rolled around, COVID hit. So kind of like 
feels just like an extended stay to what I was already in. But eight, nine months have passed and, you know, kind of getting a little lonely because, you know, I live alone and just me and my dog. So I decided to travel to New York and hunker down with my family and, you know, make the best of it. Nice. And so that's where you're at right now, currently in New York. Yes, I am in New York with my family. I've been here for a little over a month so far. And just recently, my younger sister had twins, a boy and a girl. So, you know, I'm just having fun with the babies and my other six-year-old niece. And, you know, we're making the best of it. It must be nice during this time to kind of have family that close. I wouldn't say close. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The drive was horrendous. It took me 20 hours. (laughs) <laughs> it normally it only normally only takes me fifteen, but because of my back injury, yeah, it was a, a little different for me this time. It was the first time that I had actually driven long distance. So, but just to be able to still get home and make it home uh, and quarantine with them, and you know, we have you know pretty much nothing else to to go out and do at this time. You know, depending on the city that you're in. So I figured what better way than to, you know, kind of just enter my family's quarantine bubble and, you know, spend time with them. Yeah. No, that's what I meant. Like in terms of sort of the, the bubble of, of quarantine, it's probably good that to have them around, especially with, with your sister having kids, you know, recently. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And New York has some pretty stringent requirements. Like I had to, you know, kind of really seriously quarantine for two weeks uh, once I got here coming from Georgia. Um, but Georgia was on their list. <laughs> so um, and before I could really, you know, get with the babies and had to make sure that I, you know, didn't have COVID. Yeah. I don't know what is going on in Georgia. Like we've pretty <laughs> much been open and I'm saying we, I'm including Atlanta and in that I'm in Atlanta. Like right. we've been pretty much open since June. I mean, there have been individual businesses, restaurants, et cetera, that have not opened. And of course, I think a lot of businesses are still If they can, they're still doing these remote procedures, working from home, et cetera. But in terms of like, and this is only what I've heard because I haven't, I really have not left the house since March, if I could help it. From what I've heard, like it's open, like the city is open. Traffic is pretty much the same. Like it almost feels like in a way that it's not a pandemic, just in terms of how people are, are treating being out and about, which is a little scary, but I don't know. It definitely is. I often, when I would like every two weeks go to do, you know, just my run for provisions, it's like people out and about, like nothing has ever happened. Yeah. So it was, you know, at times I'm like, why, why do I feel like I'm punishing myself Mm. (laughs) trying to stay diligent about not catching uh, this virus and, you know, doing everything that they recommended when everybody out here is having a free-for-all, you know? So it's definitely been interesting watching how Georgia has handled things. Yeah, it's something. <laughs> That's all I can really say. It's right. something. Let's talk a little bit about Care Cover. Where did you get the idea to start a new company? In quarantine and talking to my family, uh, my sister through her pregnancy, she actually had a situation where she did not feel comfortable telling her employer that, she was pregnant because she was fearful that she would lose her job as a contractor. Given that, you know, New York shut down, she worked in New York City, but lived an hour and a half outside of New York City. And so travel kind of stopped for her and she was working remote. And, you know, she was just thinking and playing through the scenarios of what could possibly happen. 
And she thought, well, what if I have these babies and I lose my job? How am I going to pay for child care if I have to go find another job? And, you know, just thinking about those things that parents think of, you know, when they have that kind of family life changing event. So having that conversation with her and then also seeing some of the segments on CNN at the time, they were running segments about child care industry and how COVID has affected the industry. The the idea kind of formulated in my head and I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be cool or, you know, probably just a, a major help for working families, especially working women, if there was an insurance product that they could purchase to cover the expense of their child care, if they were to involuntarily lose their job and that coverage would be for a short term, like three months, six months or nine months. And that would take kind of some of the financial burden off of the family while, you know, either mom or dad was, you know, looking for, you know, their next form of employment. So that's how the idea came about. I ran the idea past some of my friends who have children, young children, specifically under the age of five or daycare age. And they all, you know, thought that that would be something helpful to them as a parent, knowing that they had that extra financial protection and security. And if it came at a cost that was kind of nominal, not something astronomical, maybe somewhere between 10 to $20 a month, if it was in that lane, they could see themselves purchasing a policy of that nature. Yeah, it's crazy how in this country, you know, it's, it's funny, I was actually just talking to a, a friend of mine in the UK yesterday, and he was sort of talking about like, yeah, well, me and my wife just had a baby. And, you know, unfortunately, like in the US, you know, your insurance is tied to your employment. So if you're not working, then you're also not insured, which I mean, childcare certainly factors into that just in terms of the costs of living, you know, in in general. So it sounds like what you're doing is a really valuable service to the community. Right. I kind of compare it to if you've ever rented an apartment At some point, they ask you, hey, you know, do you have renter's insurance? Or in order to actually maintain the apartment, they require you to have renter's insurance. So what we'd like to see happen is that this form of insurance coverage actually become a staple in the child care industry, that when parents go to enroll their children, it could be, you know, asked of them from the provider, hey, would you like this extra protection or insurance coverage added to your enrollment cost? to protect you in the case that you lose your job. And the daycare provider themselves would be the beneficiary of the policy, not the person that's insured. So, you know, that's the direction we're looking to go in. So what are your work days looking like now? I mean, you're running this new business, but you're also a full-time employee at Brand Reactor, right? Yes, and yes. (laughs) Brand Reactor (laughs) actually is also a startup of mine. Oh. I actually was full-time employed at Amobi, which is an advertising technology company out in Silicon Valley. However, I worked remote from Atlanta, and that was back in May. I was the lead UI engineer there, and it really came to a head where I felt like I got the entrepreneurship bug, and it was bothering me. And I said to myself, you know, I'm done. You know what I mean? I'm done working for other people. I have these talents, these skill sets, these ideas. I've always been entrepreneurial. So I wanted to take the opportunity, and it seemed like the opportunity was right, given the state of the country, and which sounds kind of 
counterintuitive. Like, why would you quit your job, especially a very high paying job in the middle of a pandemic? But I had, I was doing just some research and I, I think I saw Mark Cuban had said something like, now is the best time to pursue an idea or, you know, if you're entrepreneurial, this would be a very good time to pursue those ideas. So I went for it. But part of my plan was to support myself over the 20 years of my career. I've always done website development as a freelancer on the side. I've always burned the candle at both ends. So Brand Reactor is part of my plan to help myself have income to live and building mobile apps for other Black-owned brands and businesses to be able to not only support myself, but help me fund and bootstrap Care Cover. Work. So you are <laughs> you started two businesses during the pandemic. And, you know, I, I have to say, because, like, I started, you know, my own business. Jesus, that was 2008. There's never a right time. There's never right. a, there's never, and this is for people listening, there's never a perfect time to start a business. Like you're saying, Mark Cuban said, it has to be right now. Like you have to take that leap of faith. You have to step out on faith and just do it. There's never right. like nothing is ever going to line up perfectly to make it happen. Cause you'll just be waiting and waiting for it to happen. So started two businesses in the middle of a pandemic. Wow. I tip my hat to you. That is amazing. Thank you. It has been a roller coaster. But I enjoy it. I enjoy the thrill of building something on my own and putting the work in and watching it grow and flourish. So I spend literally half my day working on Brand Reactor and the other half working on Care Cover. I'm happy to say that with Brand Reactor, I have a partner. She's also a mobile app developer. Her name is Sarima Thomas. So my goal with Brandon Reactor is to really just build a mobile app development company by Black women, for Black women, and building an army of Black female mobile developers. Like I'm looking for other, you know, other mobile developers. Let's work under the same banner. Let's really go out here and support our community in their digital strategies for their brands and their businesses. I know you know that, you know, the big one of the biggest statistics coming out of like the Small Business Association is that black women are the 45% of the new small businesses being started every year. Okay, that means these are women who need a digital strategy. They need, you know, a mobile app. They need a website. They need brand analysis. You know, uh, they, they need better ways and solutions to reach their customers. So that's what I'm going to be doing with Brand Reactor. And I'm going to be taking on, you know, more more staff and we're going to get it done, especially going into 2021. You know, you'll also see, you know, mobile apps from Brand Reactor in, in the App Store. We've got those coming soon. Nice. Let's talk about wealth building. I mean, careers in the whole tech industry have really kind of exploded, I'd say, in the last 10 to 15 years as a way to kind of close the wealth gap in the black community. I remember this was maybe back in 2010, 2011, CNN did this series about the new Silicon Valley and they were tracking, I think it was eight black entrepreneurs that were like going out to Silicon Valley to start businesses. Well, well actually, no, they were starting businesses under this accelerator, the new me accelerator from Angela Benton. And it was, it was her, it was Wayne Sutton. Correct. 
Hodge Fleming's, a couple of other folks. And I know that right around that time, like diversity in tech really started picking up and people were thinking like, yeah, I want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. Maybe not necessarily to make a difference in the world, although I think that's a, a great byproduct of the work that we do, but also because it makes money. And that's a, a key way to build wealth quickly in a society that has disenfranchised Black people for hundreds of years. Correct, correct. And I think I think there's two lanes there. We look at the lane from a corporate in- employment experience when it comes to tech. I've been in the tech industry for 21 years now. I started in 1999. I literally had my first development job as a college student. And, you know, before there was a Black tech community, before those Black ecosystems around the country were being built, there were people like myself there. It was just few and far between that we were able to build communities that started popping up. You know, around the time that, you know, like some of the names you mentioned, Angela, Haj, Wayne, who I know all of them and have, you know, been able to kind of chop it up with them from time to time. So, you know, I think back then, early 2000s, we were there. We just didn't have the, the, the network in place, the community in place. So for me, it was a lot of kind of figuring it out on your own. So once getting into the industry and you realize the type of salaries are out there for you to get, you know, before you build wealth, you need income. And if you check the data on where Black America is, you know, on the income scale, we're running, I think, either median or or mean around $40,000 a year. And how can you possibly build wealth at that level? with the cost of living around this country. It's damn near impossible. So taking Black people and having them enter tech and being able to command higher salaries, higher six-figure salaries, gives a better opportunity to build wealth just by the nature of having a higher income. And then hopefully we get the financial education to be able to save, invest, et cetera, once we get into those higher income brackets. Mm. The financial education part is definitely the the important part of that. Cause I know people that have gone like from college or maybe they just graduated from a boot camp and then they went straight into like a six figure job and yeah. just balled out of control. Didn't know about ways to kind of manage it or how to save up or anything like that. Right. Correct. Um, it's, and I, Hey, I was there. I, I'm not even going to lie to you. Oh, same, same. <laughs> not, not knocking it at all. I mean, spend your money. That's why you work for it. But right. I did have a moment where you, you have to get the financial education. So at one point I was working for Cisco and at any other point in my career, yes, still making six figures. And like you said, falling out, living life. But I was then taken to a new level, given lucrative shares in a company that had value, restricted stock units, stock options that netted me $200,000 in bonus income. When you get to that level and working for either startups or bigger companies that include that in your compensation package, that's exactly the opportunity where you can, you know, get a financial advisor, and 
really build wealth. Now you're into investment. You're into growing up your financial portfolio. So to be able to get to that point and have that opportunity will definitely take, you know, black people from these lower median medium incomes to now into wealth building. And I know that there are like certain apps that people use for like day trading, like Robinhood or something like that, or they'll use an app like Acorns that may round off up, you know, like the sense of a, a purchase. So it puts that into like a savings account. Like those are small ways to kind of get started. But like you said, once you really start making those six figure salaries, I would even say high fives, like mm-hmm. look into a financial advisor, definitely do that. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, like you said, the Robinhood apps are, are good, you know, to get people's foot in the door learning about investment learning about smart training and, you know, just learning the decision process of, you know, what stock to choose, et cetera. But I think, and this is the second lane, I think I had referred to earlier, there were two lanes. I think the second lane is now you want to talk about heavier investment and investing in not only yourself, if you want to get into big business and entrepreneurship versus small business or investing in tech companies. Mm. Being an angel investor, being a venture capitalist, you have to have a certain level of wealth in order to even enter that lane. Right now, the SEC has a rule that you cannot invest in the startup unless your personal net worth is at a million dollars or you make $200,000 a year in income and $300,000 a year of income combined with a spouse. So unless you meet those criteria, you can't even play in the other lane. Mm. So I think it's important for black men and black women to get into those higher, you know, six figure jobs. And then going back to actually building the black community, pairing and getting together, building families, you know, getting married so that you can put that income together so you can qualify to be an angel investor. So you can qualify to, to, to be, you know, in D.C. And then, of course, as an entrepreneur, it's a great way to build wealth is, you know, going out into your own ventures, building a tech company, becoming a founder and going mm-hmm. for venture capital funds. And, you know, that in of itself, good valuation on your company, make an exit. You have the wealth that you need. Angela Benton knows this. She's done it and she's exited with new me. Mm hmm. And we had, and she's on to her next project. We have Dawn Dickinson. She's raised a million off of crowdfunding. So there's all these people, black people in the tech space now building these companies that's going to generate wealth on a different level. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, I do hear about it. Like you certainly hear about companies that are trying to give VC money. I think what I hear less about, and maybe it's the circles I'm running in, but I hear less about the part of like becoming like a VC yourself or becoming an investor yourself. And maybe that's because there's crowdfunding and things like that, where people feel they can chip in smaller amounts towards a business or something like that. But I didn't even know that about the SEC part that you mentioned. That's, I didn't even know that. Right. Right. Exactly. Aside from crowdfunding, which with crowdfunding, you can, you know, you don't have, there's no wealth requirements, but if you want to be an angel investor, you have to you have to meet that requirement, and I believe they enacted this rule under the Obama administration, so that 
you know, when people go to raise money from friends and families, oftentimes these are people that are not educated about investing in high risk categories. And they don't, they didn't want people to lose their money by investing in startups because let's be real, the, the numbers show that I think 50 to 70% of tech startups actually fail. <laughs> so that's high risk. You might as well take, you're better off maybe taking your money to Vegas. <laughs> so they really just wanted to put a stop gap in place. So people weren't investing in companies and losing their money and not having any recourse. So they figured they would put that in place. But that also has the side effect of locking a huge portion of the population out from gaining wealth in those avenues. So before you really kind of, I guess, got into doing entrepreneurship and, and really focusing on, you know, building wealth, I noticed, you know, kind of looking back through your, through your LinkedIn and everything that you worked at a couple of places in Atlanta. So you were at the CDC for a while, which as we talked about prior to recording is like one of those, (laughs) it's like one of those companies, everyone that has worked as a designer or developer in Atlanta at some point has a connection with the CDC. Like they know someone who's worked there or they've worked there or something like that. What do you remember about that time? You know, the CDC was a special place. (laughs) (laughs) Working for government, first of all, is a whole nother ball game. And even to work in government, first you have to go through these like background checks and they're digging through everything, honey. Like (laughs) I almost didn't get the job because of my student loans. They actually ran my credentials and my background checks and stuff. And they called me down to the, to the office and was like, what is going on with your student loans? We see you're in default. What are you going to do about this? Yeah. At the time I hadn't paid my student loans for a few months because I was struggling, hadn't taken care of that. You know, I I can admit it. And I explained to them and luckily they still gave me my security clearance and I still got the job, but it's real. You know what I mean? They're, they're going to turn over every rock, first of all, to work in government. So then I was hired as a lead JavaScript developer. And actually the CDC website that you're looking at today is my work. Oh, nice. I was, right. I was brought in to redo and relaunch the website, the user interface of the website, and to lead that effort. And I had a great experience in, in doing that. However, after that part of the job was done, they moved me into some other areas and they assigned me to like four different project managers. And I'm going to toot my own horn a bit. They did that because I was that good and I was getting like I was getting it in on on work wise and getting stuff done. And so they figure, oh, she can handle it. And I couldn't like the the amount of stuff they started throwing at me stressed me out so bad because I was being pulled in so many directions. And it got to the point where it started affecting my health. And I was really having heart heart palpitations at work. And one day I just called them. I'm like, I'm not coming back. (laughs) And I literally I quit like it started affecting my health and I said, I can't do this anymore. So after that, I literally moved on and that's when I started my career at Cisco. Mm. I had very similar experiences when I worked at AT AT&T. Like, so I worked at AT AT&T from 2006 to 2008 and it was very much a high stress, high volume production environment. And like the work never stopped. 
I think right. when I started, and they didn't tell me this during the interview process, but I think when I started, they told me that they were six months behind on work. <laughs> so we're already coming in at a deficit. And there's a team wow. of like 30 designers. So it's not like they only have two or three people and they're sitting on their hands. They have a team of 30 designers. Well, 30 designers in general that were broken up into three teams and they were still six months behind on work because the salespeople, essentially the way that it, it worked, it was for the yellow pages. So the salespeople would sell the yellow page ads, but then provide like a website or a web add-on for quote unquote free. And that web add-on would be anything from a one page website to a three page website to a five to nine page website. And so while the salespeople are just out there like, making money hand over fist, selling stuff, the work just kept piling up, piling up. And every time you came in and like looked at the queue, you're at like number 10,000 of whatever. Like this is never going to stop. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. And I, I too, I was having health issues working that because I was working an early shift. I was working, I think, 6 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., I think, something like that. It was rough. It was rough. And then on top of that, to add to the high stress, they had this kind of like leaderboard <laughs> that oh. they constantly updated. So you always knew exactly what your standing was, not just on your team, but compared to all the other designers in the department. So at any wow. given time, like if you were having a bad week and your numbers were low, everybody knew about it. And they had no scruples about letting you know that they could get someone to fill your spot like that. Like you oh, need to wow. tighten up or you're out of here. Like it was so bad. I wouldn't say it was my first real design job because prior to that, I worked for the state of Georgia, but it was certainly the first time I was in such an environment that was so just high pressure, you know? Right. And not right, even right. for things that are, to be honest, I would say not even for things that are important. Like I'm doing a shoe site for a cobbler in West Virginia, or I'm doing a website for a restaurant in El Paso. Like, yes, they need these things because that's what they were sold. You know, they were sold that. But just the the volume and how quickly it had to get done and they kept changing the amounts because everything was on a point system. So like, oh, wow. yeah, so like your your bigger websites were more, uh, were more points and then your smaller websites were less. So they would decrease the amount of points each item was worth. And then increase the, the queue, like basically the, what you had to hit every week for your quota. It was so stressful. I look back at that time and I hate it. I love it for some reasons and that it like gave me the ability to code fast and like it gave me the speed to like make quick decisions when it came to design. But other than that, mm -hmm. Ooh, so rough. And so many yeah. people I know go from AT&T to CDC. It's like a direct pipeline. I think the CDC may be a little bit better than AT&T. While it was stressful, <laughs> it wasn't that stressful. <laughs> At least, because what you're describing sounds like an assembly line. And the last time I've heard about a leaderboard, first of all, I have never heard about a leaderboard in design or development work. That's number <laughs> And the last time I've seen one of those, I worked in telemarketing as a 19-year-old. So <laughs> that sounds horrendous. But I think for me, the stress was just when you do such good work and you don't put boundaries beside, you know, around yourself and people just think they can throw anything around you and you don't really know how to say no. That's what stressed me out. Like, I just didn't know how to tell them no. And all, before I knew it, I had all of this stuff 
just flying at me to the point where I just wanted to, you know, I literally called in and said, I'm not coming back. And you can keep keep the stuff that's on my desk. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even coming back for that. So, yeah, I understand. I totally get it. Now, let's switch gears here a little bit. You know, earlier on in the interview, you mentioned being uh, in New York. Is that where you grew up? Yes, I am originally from Newburgh, New York. That's where I was born. And a little bit later in life, around five, my family relocated to Poughkeepsie, New York, which is just up the road. And I have, I left New York at 29 years old to move to Atlanta. Was tech kind of a big part of your growing up in Poughkeepsie? Absolutely. It actually was. My stepfather, who I adore dearly, his name is Melvin, we call him Doug, Melvin Douglas Deloach. He was actually a programmer analyst for Reader's Digest for a good 25, I want to say maybe 30 years. He's actually still programmer slash system analyst today. And he was kind of the first exposure that I had. So there was always computers around the house, always books around the house. And I was kind of the atypical female child. I wasn't interested in really going outside and playing with the other little girls. I wanted to stay in the house and play video games mm. like Super Mario Brothers, and Sega Genesis, and all of that stuff. And my parents kind of thought I was weird. And <laughs> so they like enrolled me in like all this girly stuff, gymnastics, ballet, voice lessons. And I was like, womp, womp, not interested. Mm. <laughs> I actually started skipping those classes when they would drop me off. I would go in the building and wait till they left and pulled off. And then I would leave and skip, and then show back up just in time to be picked up. And they caught me one day. So (laughs) that's when they figured out, like, okay, this is not her thing. And they let me kind of continue on my video game path. And, you know, um, they started enrolling me in, you know, into programs by that point that were STEM-oriented. So Marist College had a, what we know as, you know, kind of in New York. They may have this program in other states, but um, it was called CSTEP, uh, Computer Science Technology Enrichment Program. A lot of the colleges in New York State have programs like that where they take high school students throughout the year on the weekends and then during the summer for maybe like four to six weeks in a, can- a kind of camp situation and expose them to different STEM topics. So my mom had a friend who ran that program for Marist College and she enrolled me in it and I was then kind of like given a badge as a high school student for the campus and we lived right up the road. So not only was I enrolled in the program activities, I would use my badge to walk down to the campus and sit in the computer lab all day. This was when it was Netscape and chat rooms and AOL. I was just on there doing my thing and, and digging into the computer and looking in the operating systems and stuff like that. So my grandmother brought me a computer. And by this time, I was like 16, 17 years old, and they brought me a computer. Now, if you remember, this was 97, when you brought a computer, it didn't come with a CD-ROM drive, it didn't (laughs) come with the graphic card, it was a shell. It was literally the operating system, you know, you have to install the media kits yourself to get all those extra bells and whistles, and AOL still came on a, a disc. So it was exciting for me to be able to, you know, take the computer apart, install the media kit, 
put it back together. You know, I kind of, you know, got my, my hands in the weeds and figure out what was on the operating system. You know, back then it wasn't easy to tell what actually was installed. If you got like a refurbished computer, like my grandparents had gotten me, you didn't know what was on it. You literally had to tinker with the operating system, figure out what the commands were actually found the fantastic four game. It was all text prompts. (laughs) and it's like you had to figure out what the next you know what was the the right answer to move the game along yeah so you know just that kind of exposure and and by the time you know college came around i just knew you know i'm gonna major in computer science and you know my dream was to go work for lockheed martin Mm. and i went to clarion university of pennsylvania where i started my bachelor's degree in computer science Nice. Do you feel like that time, you know, there kind of helped prepare you once you really got out there working as a developer? Actually, I give myself credit for that because at that time, and which is not the case anymore, you enter university on a computer science track and they're teaching you theory. You're, you're, yes, you're learning to program it, but they're not teaching you real world application. So by my junior year, and this goes back to my dad again, I had came home for a break and I saw an HTML CSS book laying on his desk. I decided to read it, picked it it up, taught myself basically how to do HTML CSS JavaScript. So at that time, that's not being taught at university. You're learning Pascal, you're learning basic, you're learning assembly language, C, C++. You're not learning anything web related at all so i had to self-teach to learn web development and doing so i was able to get my first job at the university as as a webmaster for the career services department early on and i just used what i had taught myself you know to have that as my work study job And that took me into freelancing. I started building websites for all the campus organizations, Black Student Union, the Gospel Choir, my sorority chapter. And I realized, oh, I can make money doing this on the side. And I actually had to leave Clarence University of Pennsylvania because of my parents' financial situation. And I had to find my own way and figure out how I was going to pay for my remainder of school. And I transferred back into New York State and ended up at the uh, university at Albany. And that's where I basically freelanced doing websites and started building my own portfolio to help put myself through school so that by the time that I graduated, I had a full portfolio of work and I was able to get hired very quickly after graduating because I was already technically a professional. Yeah. I mean, you were already amassing clients and getting work. And putting yourself through school. So, I mean, it, it certainly, I think at that, and just to kind of, I guess, put this into context, I'm thinking about years. This is like early 2000s, right? Like early to mid 2000s. Right. Yeah. Right. There was nothing in the way of education around web design. You were learning everything yourself. Exactly. So I had taught myself not, not just development, design as well. So I've always been a designer and a developer. I've always been full stack. And to me, full stack, they may call full stack nowadays, oh, you can do UI work and you can do backend development. No, full stack to me is you can design and you can set up a database and build everything in between. 
that's what I consider full stack. And that's what I had to teach myself. So in combination of that and my traditional formal learning from my computer science degree, I was able to get out there and hit the ground running. And I started my first job out of college was working for Cupid.com, which was one of the first online dating sites to hit the market before Match, before eHarmony, there was Cupid.com. Yeah. Which is still in existence, I think. Oh, really? It's still in existence? It was a startup. And as one of the originals, you know, being a startup, you open up a market and then other people realize that they can get in the market. Yeah. Then comes Match, then comes eHarmony. Now you got Tinder, you know, once mobile took off. So, mm-hmm. uh, but they're still hanging around. And funny now, I think like most of those are all owned by, I think they're all owned by the same company. Like I, th- mm-hmm. I know Match also owns Tinder and OkCupid. So mm-hmm. it's just like different brands, but it's all the same, the same company in that way. Yeah. Back then, I mean, there was, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that about the stack. Cause I feel like the stack has changed so much now that, a lot of development on the web is JavaScript based. Like the stack Mm -hmm. is now about like what frameworks are you using to achieve a certain thing? Whereas it's not even about front end versus back end anymore. Like you said, back then you had to know it all because there were no, I don't want to say there weren't any specialties, but like you were a web designer, a web developer or a webmaster. Like Mm -hmm. that was kind of it or a graphic designer. And you just sort of figured out how to do all the things you figured out how to do all the stuff. Like, yeah, when I started at AT&T, I knew, I knew Dreamweaver, but I think prior to that, I had been designing with Notepad. I'm dating myself, uh, but like I was right. using, I was using Notepad and then learned Dreamweaver. And like also at that time, there was, I think Go Live was still around back then, maybe mm-hmm. like early 2000s Adobe Go Live. And there was another one that was with CSS called. I think top style or something. There was a lot of different kind of tools that you use, but like it was more about learning the language and the concepts behind it than just like getting good at a certain tool, you know? Right. You, you had no choice. And, you know, to, to further look, I'm going to date myself with you when you could not afford the, the macro media, which is now Adobe mm-hmm. products. So you got Dreamweaver and cold fusion and you know oh, all cold fusion tools. oh god right, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's it's like if when you couldn't afford them you had to go get e-mule and e-donkey mm-hmm. find a stream of packets that all together made up the whole program and then you had to go find you know the registration key yeah and the okay. serial number a cracked you know version and, somewhere, and, and yeah. A cracked version and hack your way into the tools that you needed to be a web developer. Because let's face it, back in, in that day, those programs are eight, nine hundred dollars a pop. Yeah. Each. Yeah. Now they're twenty nine ninety nine a month. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely did that with Photoshop. I would also go to to Barnes and Noble and look at those like fifteen dollar big glossy British design magazines and just like copy all the stuff out of there. Or like those books, there used to be these books that would be like yeah. Photoshop six tips and tricks. And it showed you how to do all these uh, different sorts of uh, like effects, like leopard print, ice, fire, etc. And I would just go in with my little digital camera, click, click, go home and like mimic it. Cause like you couldn't afford it. It was so expensive. Exactly. So cost prohibitive. 
Right. The barrier to entry back then was kind of high, wasn't it? Yeah. High and expensive. Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely was. So, you know, you know, using all those kind of, you know, those are your first hacking skills, I would mm-hmm. say. You kind of hacked your, your career at that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now so. developers have it so easy. They can go to like GitHub or, or Code Sandbox or something, and you've got your whole IDE right there in the browser. You can just get started no installations or anything like that. Like it's, it's a lot easier these days. I have to say that. Right. But that speaks to the low barrier of entry now, especially for black people. Mm -hmm. You cannot, you can no longer say, I can't do this because you can, you can, all the resources are there. You don't have to go to university anymore. You don't even have to go to a boot camp. No longer are we at the point where you need a formal computer science degree to get these jobs. That's changed. And there are a lot of people out here who have come out of prison, taught themselves how to code. Mm-hmm. So, so now it's a, a solution to recidivism in the black community. Yep. As well as wealth. So I really, you know, in my spare time, really, you know, take joy and find joy in helping people find their path into this industry and it's so easy now and it's like you you don't want to be back in 2000 or, or <laughs> like you, you wouldn't make it uh, that's know. that's very true some of these gen zers just wouldn't make it <laughs> and these younger millennials i'm an older millennial but some of these younger millennials too they wouldn't make it yeah that's very true yeah i know like you you mentioned uh with with um like people coming out of prison i know there's a organization in new york called code collective that works with people that are coming out of prison and like teaching them coding skills there's vets who code who teaches uh veterans jerome hardaway teaches veterans how to code and gets them placed like there's so much more opportunity now and the tools are so i don't say easy to use but they're certainly easy to procure so like it's you don't have to jump through all the hoops like we had to do. You don't have to find the cracked version and hope that it doesn't give your computer a virus and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. Oh, man. You know what? I think the level of exposure for children is, you know, obviously greater now. We have Black Girls Code, all those sorts of programs. But just to, as an individual family, you know, to expose your children is even easier now. So, and coming back to quarantine with my family, I actually stopped at Target and brought my six-year-old niece this program called Osmo. And you hook it up to your, your laptop and it has a little kind of mirror contraption that sits on the top and hooks the laptop to the base. And it comes with these co- connectable blocks that allow children to learn logic and programming. So, even as a kid, and you know, you know, people. I'm pretty sure people who have the experience of becoming a coder when they're really young, you still had to hack your way into the computer system and manually figure that out. Now you can teach your children in the manner of you know how they learn yeah. with toys, with proper learning, you know, age appropriate learning devices. So you know, I'm I'm trying to get to every kid I can that's within my you know circle of influence. Oh, you want to be a software engineer? <laughs> if I have anything to do with it, nieces, nephews, godchildren, I'm going to get them all. <laughs> and speaking of Black Girls Code, you uh, did a stint with them as a volunteer, right? 
Yes, yes. Love, love, love the organization. Kimberly Bryant um, had the pleasure of meeting her. I volunteered for their, one of the early programs, uh, build a web slash mobile app in a day. So that was wonderful to be able to see. And at that time, it, I think it was around their first or second year. So community was super excited about it. So lots of lots of girls would sign up and, you know, we'd have a really, really packed program and seeing that they had tapped into that energy was awesome. Number one, but then seeing the curriculum that she had curated to teach these young women and expose them to the industry using tools from MIT and and Google, they have these tools that are curated for children to teach them how to code using their favorite Disney characters and using things that they can relate to, like blocks as children, you know, the stuff that they're used to playing with. So it was a really, really good experience. And I definitely would do it again. I actually just spoke on a panel for the Atlanta chapter a couple of months ago, uh, invited by one of the chapter leads. So I would definitely do it again. Nice. Speaking, you know, of Atlanta, what has the tech scene been like for you since you've been here? I mean, you said you moved here when you were 29. I know currently because of the pandemic, you're in New York, but the time that you spent here working and and really sort of getting in the community here, what was the the tech scene like for you? So when I got here, again, I would say there really wasn't a cohesive Black tech community. And let's see, I, I touched out in October of 2009. It wasn't until around, I want to say, 2013 that the ecosystem started coming together. And I think a lot of that was being driven by startup scene in parallel. And then I feel like because of the startup scene and the tech people in the startup scene, the tech scene kind of also started to, to grow as well. So I can say a lot of times when I started doing like meetup.com, going to meetups, going to conferences and really just getting to knowing, you know, other people in the area, it was a great feeling. It was really a great feeling to really finally be in the room with people who look like you and they had the same skill set, had the same concerns, fears, successes, et cetera. It was really a good time. And, you know, I've enjoyed seeing that grow and where we've gotten to today, especially with people like Rodney Sampson, Dr. Paul Judge, leading the space, Jewel Burks, have uh, Joey from Goody Nation, all of those, you know, collective people I really look up to. And I love the work that they're doing in Atlanta. And there's even uh, folks that are bringing like their talent and their business here. Like I think Catherine Finney is here now f- from Digital mm-hmm. Undivided. Uh, I know Tristan Walker's here from his company, Walker & Company. Right. So folks are even now coming and bringing that brain trust to the city. Right. I mean, it, it's it's really taken, you know, these folks to elevate the awareness that Atlanta is definitely the next hot spot and where these other major companies need to be to source diverse talent And I'll say this, I am a little peeved at the bigger companies like Facebook, Netflix, Amazon. Talk about it. 
while all of <laughs> I feel like I know exactly where you're about to go with this. Right. You know, they have, what, for the last five, six, seven years, have given these DNI numbers and, oh, we can't find anybody. And I make it a point to say to these recruiters, they re- I swear I get an email every other week from one of them, uh, you know, saying company, you know, oh, we're interested in you. And I, the, the first thing I say to them, are you opening an Atlanta, uh, office in Atlanta? Oh, well, no, we're not. Okay, then well, you can't have me. You want diverse talent? You want to get those numbers up? Why aren't you opening offices in the most obvious place ever? That will solve all your DNI problems right there. Yes, you know, Black people are 13% of the population, but I bet you if you go set up shop in Atlanta, you can hit that 13%. Why has it taken them so long? And I mean, not just from like working professionals, but I mean, we have so many HBCUs here because companies are starting to look at HBCUs and, and, you know, they're sending coordinators out to different HBCUs, but it's like, come, come to Atlanta. We're here. Exactly. I felt like they, they didn't want to. They know we're here. They know I don't know. Here. I don't, I don't know if they still want to. Really? So I'll give some, Explain. some kind of, yeah, I'll give some. <laughs> So I've been here, I've been in Atlanta since 99. So I came here for college, went to Morehouse, came here in 99, graduated in 03, worked from like 03 to 08. I also went to grad school here as well. And so by the time I had started my studio, which was in two, well, I'm trying to put this in the right context, started my studio in late 2008. In 2009, I ended up working for a political campaign. One of the mayoral campaigns was here, worked on one of their staffs. That introduced me to a lot of people in like the nonprofit space, government space and things like that. So by the time like 2010-ish came along, I was like, okay, I feel like I have a handle on like where my studio is, where my business is, things like that. So it's time for me to go and like network and meet people. And there weren't a ton of places back then in Atlanta where you could really go and try to meet other like-minded tech or design folks. Like you maybe would go to Octane on Howell Mill, which is closed yeah. now, by the way. Is it? Wow. Because of the pandemic. Oh, yes. yeah. Uh, you'd go to Octane or you would like maybe like lounge around the Atlanta Tech Village. Not Atlanta Tech Village. I'm sorry. ATDC. This was prior to the Atlanta Tech Village because they started yes. in 2012. Yeah, they started in 2012. So like back then I was sort of like freelance writing for a site called Tech Drawl. And it was this, this woman, her name was Celia. She's like, yeah, I want to start basically like tech crunch, but in the South because the tech media doesn't ever look at the South when it comes to like anything. Like they'll look at Miami. They'll look at Texas. They'll look at DC, but like the whole Southeastern region, they don't look at. Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia. They don't, they don't even look at that as a space where tech is happening. I don't know if they think we're down here like barefoot and blowing into brown jugs or something like that, but like they weren't looking at that region as like a tech hotspot. And I would wager now, like 10 years later, even with the successes that have come out of this region, a lot of folks still don't, particularly out West. They just don't. They don't look at the South that way. And it's like, even like with what I do with Revision Path, I'll tell people what I do. Everyone thinks I'm out of New York. I'm like, no, I'm out of Atlanta. Like Atlanta, really? 
what's going on down there? Hotlanta, you know, like they don't know like what is actually happening in the city. They're not trying to know. And these are companies that are looking for diversity. They're trying to correct those horrible DNI workforce numbers. But like you said, they're not starting offices here in Atlanta. Or if they're starting offices here, it's not for tech. So like Twitter, I think, has a sales office here in Pont City Market, but like not tech. And Facebook has two offices here. One is in one is actually near near that octane, like right there by God. What's 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 that street? Howell Mill, North Side. It's like right over in that area, North Marietta, like right in that area. There's a Facebook office, and then there's one up in the perimeter near the King and Queen building. I don't know if they have developers there. I think they have like program managers or stuff like that. But there's opportunity to have those companies here. I mean, if there's one thing Atlanta has is corporate real estate. So they could certainly do a remote work. I would think with the pandemic, maybe remote working becomes more of a a possibility. But Twitter has just recently started recruiting from Atlanta, like as of maybe a couple of years ago. And that's because they have a black person as their VP of uh, design and research. So let me tell you how these people are the whole lie. (laughs) I don't delete email. Okay. My Gmail. It's, It's a... It's a dumpster, okay? <laughs> and I can pull the emails from between 2010 and now, mm-hmm. okay? They know we're here. They've been knowing that the talent is here because what they will do, they'll send out these private invites. They'll send these yep. engineering managers into town. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll, oh, we're doing a dinner. I'll get these emails that say, oh, well, you're invited to such and such dinner we want to want you to get together with other local talent and we want to hear you know and not pick your brain but how do they word it like we want to kind of do a brainstorm or yeah um, yeah hear from hear from you know developers like yourself and they're using that as a tool of recruitment instead of just building the office they've been doing that for years and they'll come and they'll, they'll feed you or they'll feed you good 10 15 of us and, and trying to entice you back to Seattle, back to San Francisco, into New York. They've been doing that for years. And I go get my free meal. I ain't going <laughs> to lie to you. Oh, you want to feed me for me to tell you no? Cool. Um, Facebook, I've been to Facebook events, private events. I've been to government private events. The, the CTO, the first CTO the, the U.S. has had under Obama. He did the, they did the same thing. They went on to they went into the um Clark Atlanta and you know uh, AUC. They invited all these black talent and then they handpicked a few of us and literally had us have dinner in this back room of this swanky restaurant up in Buck with the door closed. Like what goes on in this room stays in this room. Here's our program. Here's what we want to tell you from the DC. They've been doing this for years. They've been doing this for years, but have refused to build the offices. They're a whole lie. Okay. (laughs) And Google was here in 2010. I worked right underneath the Google office and they've always just staffed marketing and sales in that office on 1010 Peachtree. And I used to go into work every day and sit at my desk and look up at the ceiling like, I'm going to work for Google one day. not knowing that there were no engineers in that office. 
So when they say they're working on diversity and inclusion, they're lying. <laughs> they're absolutely lying. I feel like it's a, on some level, maybe they don't believe that the talent in Atlanta is, is smart enough or capable enough to justify offices here. Like, or may, maybe they don't feel like they want to have an office that's literally going to be all black people. I don't know. But... <laughs> Just, Maybe they think I, it's too risky. I don't, it's funny because, like, as you're mentioning this, I am now thinking of these dinners that I have either been invited to or have been asked, like, through Revision Path to invite people to. And they have been these sort of, like, secretive closed door, like, we're not moving keys here. Like, you're, you're trying to get people employed. Like, why are you treating this like it's a drug deal? Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. And I, I get these invites all the time. Netflix, Amazon. Twitter, Facebook, actually, you know who's coming here, who on the low, I don't think they, they've put it out there yet, but I got my call, as I always do, Lyft. I talked to the recruiter the other day, and I just I just was curious, wanted to see what they were talking about. You know, I'm doing my thing with my businesses, but I always got to have a backup plan. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're coming. Lyft is coming here. They want to build an office. You know, in Atlanta in 2021, and looking, they're looking to hire their first staff remotely. And the position I talked to the lady about was the lead UI engineer for the office, and I would be the first hire. So I'm sitting here thinking in my mind, like, now should I try to swing both of these business and go back into corporate at the same time? <laughs> Just get this money real quick. Look, <laughs> if you if you can do it, do it. If you can do it, do it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm considering it. I really didn't want to go back into corporate, but you know, when you're trying to bootstrap a startup, you need all every dive you can get. So it may be, you know, on, on, on my plans, but yeah, Lyft is coming to Atlanta. See, now I want to ask like every big muckety muck person that I've had here on the show. I want to ask them, why aren't you opening an office in Atlanta? If your company is serious about DNI. It makes perfect Nail sense. To the cross, if you're okay. if you're talking about, you know, like I know that the, the term pipeline is thrown around a lot. I don't necessarily like that term because I feel like pipelines strip resources out. It's not really putting things back into the place where you're getting them from. And so I don't know if they're looking at Atlanta as just this like wealth of resource that they can pull from, but not that they actually want to invest into. Exactly. Because I think the investment they may not see it as worth the investment. If like, what else could it be? You know, maybe they're looking at it as, okay, we need to up our numbers. You know, it would cost us less to pay the salaries of five to 10 people and be able to get them into San Fran or Seattle versus going to do a full scale, signing a lease, building out. That's a serious investment. And I'm wondering, do they not see us as worth that investment? Like see, this is heavy. <laughs> maybe they're trying to get you right. Maybe they're trying to get DNI for as cheap as possible. So I just I don't know. I think you definitely should nail them to the cross when you <laughs> when you interview them and ask them, you know, why aren't you building in Atlanta? And see what the reason is. I mean, how could I don't see how they can justify it. AT&T is here, Coca-Cola's here, Home Depot's here, Cisco's here, you know, 
all of these other major companies have either found their home in Midtown, Buckhead, or Alpharetta. What's your excuse? I'll tell you what's interesting. Like right now, as we're recording this, I'm in the middle of looking for a job. And I've talked to a number of different companies here in the United States. I've talked to Facebook. I've talked to Twitter, et cetera. And of course, you know, these companies are working remotely now because of the pandemic, but every one of them has sort of given the the very strong hints that eventually we want you to move to where we are. And I'm like, I'm not moving. Right. <laughs> I've been here for 20 years. My family is in Alabama. I want to be close to them. I'm not moving. So if you want me, we'll have to work out some remote thing or, you know, if they open an office here, that would be another thing. But the conversation usually kind of ends after that. You know, the, the companies that have been interested in doing remote stuff, European companies. Mm-hmm. Like I've talked to a company in the Netherlands, one in Israel, one in, well, Vancouver's in Canada, but like not American companies is what I'm trying to say. They're like, oh, yeah, Ooh, we'll I work with you. Oh, that's an interesting lane. I haven't done that yet. Yeah, because the American company, and I don't know if <laughs> this might not even be true by the time this interview comes out, but the American companies, from what I've seen, the larger tech companies particularly are like, yeah, we can do remote through 2021 or whatever, like Microsoft, Facebook, et cetera. Some of the more mid-sized companies or, or ad agencies or things like that are like, oh, we're still trying to play it by ear. They're trying to like put an end date on when they're going to go back into the office or they'll work out some kind of hybrid model where you work from home three days, work in the office two days or something like that, you know, but the European companies are like, yeah, you can work remote. How much? No problem. Every serious offer that I've entertained has not been from an American company. Nice. This is a point again, where I think these companies are lying about what they are and they're not able to do. How do you employ whole teams in Israel, in India, in Prague, and and you have all these distributed teams working for the company, yet you have a problem with your own American workers working remote? You want to go back into the office when you have a back-end team over here sitting in Israel? You've never had a problem with them being remote? Uh, Yeah, but maybe it's a different mindset or something. I I did a panel last week with a very large financial company, which I'll tell you about after we we stop recording, but I did a panel with them. And I guess this is something that they do with all their internal meetings is that the video interface checks your attentiveness. So it's like doing eye tracking to see if you're looking at the screen. And so I think at one point during the panel, the, the attentiveness dropped to like below 35% or something like that. And the person who was moderating the panel like stepped in and was like, oh, we've seen that attentiveness has gone down. We just want to make sure that everyone is paying attention to the panel. I'm like, wow, that is like some weird big brother kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that other companies are doing that level of of surveillance, but that's whack i'm definitely a big proponent and as i you know uh head down my own path of being a ceo trust the work and the output that people give you trust that they're going to do their, their jobs the best companies that i have worked at didn't have such stringent requirements and they trusted their employees and i was productive i did the work 
Now, I will say it still was a situation where, okay, I'm going to work full time here and I'm going to work full time over here. And on Monday through Wednesday, I'm going to do your work. Thursday and Friday, I'm going to do your (laughs) these other people work. And I don't think there should be a problem with that. Somebody holding down multiple, you know, jobs or whatever the case may be. But which is going to become a thing with remote work. It's coming. I've seen the chatter on Twitter already about people talking about moonlighting full time. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Mm -hmm. Between different two tech companies. But uh, again, the point is, you know, you got to trust your employees. You know what I'm saying? You there's if you can't look at productivity and the metrics of your KPIs and look at that output and be able to see and tell who's productive and who's not, you don't know how to manage. Right. And I'll stand on that. And and like the pandemic, what what it's showing or what I what I hope it shows is that there's going to have to be fundamental changes to the American work system to deal with like this new reality that we're in. Like people are going to want to work remote. Companies are going to have to trust their employees. Like the attendance thing, just when that happened, I, that threw me off for the rest of the panel. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. first of all, the panel was at lunch. So people were probably eating lunch while this panel was going on, which is not a crime, but they're right. like, Oh, well we've noticed that you're not paying attention. You should probably be looking at the screen. Like, what? Just, oh my goodness. But even like the five day work week may have to change the nine to five hours. Like, I don't know. I've I've been fortunate that the last, the last place that I worked at was very much a results only work environment. And yeah, they wanted you to sort of keep certain hours, but they weren't super picky about when those hours were as long as you got the job done. And I wish that more companies exhibited that level of of trust and honestly during this time that grace to know that like yes you're working a job but look at all this other shit that's happening out in the world that we have to deal with on top of this you know exactly homeschooling children while you're trying to work our mental health our work-life balance i think we deserve to be more flexible like just to have that flexibility to be able to say you know what Yes, I work nine to five in the office, but given the situation, I'm going to have to break my day up. I may need to leave the last three hours of my work for the day from seven to 10 and take a huge break in the middle of the day where people would otherwise be collaborating and meeting. You know what I mean? I think it's definitely going to to come to that. And I'm sure we'll see a lot of uh, technical and, you know, uh, just SaaS solutions around you know, working in new ways. I hope so. I mean, certainly I've seen tools that have started to pop up really mostly to cover events. Like I've seen a number of maybe like a half a dozen different types of platforms for people that are wanting to do virtual events because everyone, I think, defaulted to Zoom kind of, you know, very easily once the pandemic started. But now there's platforms like Big Market and hop in and there's even old school ones like go to meeting and webex and stuff that people are still using but like there's opportunity that can come out of this to create the tools that will really serve workers best during this time instead of trying to adhere to what used to be like back in the day well before the pandemic we can't do that now we have to move forward and come up with new solutions for the reality that we're in right now yes exactly and that reality is not changing anytime soon and the quicker we all get on board and make this as least stressful as possible 
find the path of least resistance, the better yeah. we all will be. <laughs> Listen, because that's because that's stress too. What if you've been working yeah. from home for the past six months and now your employer is like, bring your ass back to the office, but you don't feel comfortable right. working in the office because now during the pandemic, you've got kids that you have to care for because they're not in school. Or what if you've had to like take in an elderly family member or something like everyone's home has now transformed into more than just the place where they sleep. Like it's multimodal in that way. So work has to adapt to that, knowing that people are going to be juggling at any given point in time, a number of different responsibilities that have nothing to do with where they work. Absolutely. And, and quick story, my co-founder, actually, her name is Allison. And she also happens to be my second cousin. She is my chief data scientist at CareCover. She actually just recently lost her full-time job because they asked them to come back into the office in Midtown, New York. That's like asking someone to go to ground zero of a pandemic right now to go back into an office. And she declined because her youngest son has a lot of allergies and she just didn't feel comfortable sending him to primary school at this time given his health situation and remote work really well for her. So she had to say, okay, I'm out. If you need me to come to the office, I'm out. And it's going to happen a lot. That's going to happen a lot. What is it that's keeping you motivated during this time? Like what's keeping you inspired to continue this work? Honestly, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And the fact that working in tech has provided me the time, the space, the capital to be able to take this risk. Number one, I don't want to squander it because they're once in a lifetime opportunities. This is probably not going to happen again. And, you know, that really motivates me to, to do well. And also, um, I think I touched on this earlier, uh, Black Americans often don't have the opportunity to get into big business at a certain scale. We're still looking for our unicorn company, so to speak, right? Seeing and having a Black American grow, build, grow, and scale a company that reaches that IPO level, that $100 million, $200 million in revenue to the point that you can IPO and get to that level. We're still looking for that. And I think Care Cover has the potential to be that. The insurance industry is a very lucrative industry. And even just capturing small single digit percentages of the market could put a company in the uh, half a billion dollar a year revenue range, just by, again, capturing single digits in the market. And I think Care Cover has that potential. And I want to take the risk to be that person that shows Black people can build big business, Black women can build big business that reaches the stock market. And, you know, be an innovator, you know, in that sense, I'm at a pre-seed stage, you know, looking for investors who believe in me, my team, my product, so that we can have that opportunity. The insurance industry is a very hard industry to get into. There's a huge regulatory framework that you need to get past. So we're looking for the funds to get past that hurdle right now and, and getting uh, licensed and registered in the States. So that's what's keeping me motivated. I want to be that person. Doing small business is nice, but I want to do big business. I want to IPO. I want that legacy. And I believe a thousand and one percent that I can do it and I can pull it off. 
one question that we're asking everyone on the show this year, um, and I'll ask you this as well. How are you using your tech skills to help build a more equitable future? So I think I take that on into kind of my spare time of mentoring and coaching people who want to get into the tech industry. They want to transition their careers. I mentor a number of people. Um, actually, one of my mentees just got her first job coming out of boot camp because the boot camp she paid for didn't really accurately prepare her for the workforce that she was heading into. So I've had to help her and give her additional resources on the way and do kind of resume building and, and things like that with her to better prepare her. So I'm always, no matter what I'm doing professionally, business-wise, I'm always going to be here to help other people transition their careers into tech and be able to have the best outcome you know, possible. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work would you like to be doing? I see myself IPOing in the next five years. Back to the previous you know, question. That's my five-year plan. I want to be able to see, you know, CEO of CareCover, Tanisha Kelly, grew and scaled this company that is now on the stock market. And, you know, and take an investment, not only from the greater global community, but from my community. You know what I'm saying? I want to be that edge case for our community. I want to open the lane up for our community to invest in me so that we can get there together. So that's my five-year plan. I want to make that exit into big business. And just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and your businesses online? I'm sure... By now, the audience really wants to follow what you're doing. Yes. So you can find me on all social media outlets under my handle, Black Girl Tech, and that's girl with a U, B-L-A-C-K-G-U-R-L-T-E-C-H. And my website is www.blackgirl.tech. All right. Sounds good. Well, Nisi Kelly, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you really for sharing, I mean, the wealth of information about financial empowerment and diversity and inclusion and tech and even just your story. Like so much of what you said, I think, runs parallel to what's honestly to what I've done. I mean, I'm thinking back to to my career, but I, I say all that to say you've been in the game for a while and what you bring is perspective, you know, you're able to see this is how it used to be. This is how it was. And so with that knowledge, you can say, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to go. And I think certainly any person that's starting two very important businesses like you're doing in the middle of a pandemic, like you're on to something big. So I am super excited to see where you go in the next few years. And I just want to thank you again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Uh, glad to you know have the conversation with you and hopefully we'll be able to do it again in the future. Big, big thanks to Nisi Kelly. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Nisi and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcast. Just like Rose's review, I'll read it right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.